Hello and welcome to Anarchy SF, a podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. I'm Yanai Senand and joining me is Eden. Eden, say hello. Hello, hello. Eden, I have a story for you. I Oh, please. It's not directly related to the episode, but I wanted to tell it to you on air. I just finished talking to my youngest brother, who's nine, on Zoom, and we were playing okay. with uh, a game called Akinator. I don't know if you know it. It's like a website that asks you like 21 questions and uses AI to figure out like what character you were thinking about. Hmm. And when we play this game, he texts me the character that we're going to talk about because he doesn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> and Because th- he thinks the AI is listening? Yes. And I think it's kind of amazing how like, you know, children kind of like adapt really quickly to their environment and kind of study it and learn like what they can expect. Yeah. And it's amazing that, like, it seems completely natural to him to think that his computer is obviously spying on him to cheat at the game. Yeah, from the mouth of babes, yeah, as they say. I don't know. It was really funny to me. That's a good story. It reminds me of the story that our philosophy teacher used to tell us with the sand. Do you remember that one? No. He had, like, cousins or, I don't, know, I don't remember, nephews or whatever that were really young, and they would ask him what he does, and he'd say... He's a philosophy teacher, and they would ask, obviously, what is philosophy? So he needed to come up with ways to explain to them what philosophy is. And one of the ways that he came up with is the problem of quantity. So mm-hmm. if I take a grain of sand and I put it on my hand, I have a grain of sand, right? It's not a pile. And then I add another grain and another grain and so on. And at what point does it turn from a thousand grains of sand into a pile of sand? It's called the heap paradox, I think. Yeah, exactly. And there's another version with the person going bald, right? They lose a hair every day. At what point are they bald? So, and then the punchline would be that the children would always get it really quickly, but the adults would be confused and they would ask him follow-up questions. The kids are like, oh, that's philosophy? Yeah, that's interesting. And then they would go play or whatever and the adults would be like, wait, but what's the answer? Like, what's the solution to the heap paradox? And he would try and tell them, there is no solution. It's a paradox. It's all about like the question that it makes you ask, and they would not like that solution. Yeah, that's also interesting. Let's talk about sand. And depression in space. Yeah. We are going to talk about Aniara. What is so Aniara? You're the science fiction film festival expert, so yeah. let us have it. So actually, this is originally not a film. This is an epic science fiction poem. That's right. Oh. You heard me correctly. And the reason it's called Epic is that it's written in the same tradition as something like the Odyssey or Virgilius's Aeneid. It was written by Harry Martinson between 1953 and 1956. And Harry Martinson is a really interesting character. He's Swedish. He was born in 1904. And his early life was a life of vagrancy. He joined a ship to sail around the world, and then because of lung conditions, he had to go back to land, where he was eventually arrested for vagrancy because he was just sleeping at a park. And then, in very early 20th century fashion, he became a poet in 1929, and he actually became so influential that he is considered one of the fathers of Swedish modernism, which is a literary movement. He was part of a group called The Five Youths, or at least that's the anthology that they published that was super influential, and he went on to winning the Nobel Prize. Now, sadly... For this or for something else? For his career, right? 
the sad thing is that because he was a member of the Swedish Academy, alongside with his co-winner that year, Avin Johnson, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing the names, by the way, there was a lot of rumors about, you know, corruption and bias because they were actually on the Nobel panel oh. right, when they won the Nobel. Martinson took it so hard, took this criticism of corruption so hard that he took his own life. Wow. Yes, following the controversy. Actually, I won't go into the details. You can read about it because it's very graphic. But he actually performed harakiri, right? Oh. Or like Japanese ritual suicide. And he wrote an ER which is a really long and excellent poem about a ship called Anyara that has to abandon Earth in his version of it because of a nuclear holocaust, a nuclear world war that mm-hmm. destroys the planet. And that kind of like reflects when it was written, right? The 50s, post-World War II, everyone was very rightfully scared about atomic weaponization. And that's kind of the atmosphere that this poem was written in. Wow, that, now in, that biography just yeah. like informs the movie so much. I can't believe I didn't know anything. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I forgot one really important part. He was also affiliated with a bunch of anarchist movements. And he also wrote for an anarchist newspaper called Brand, where he met his wife. She actually ended up divorcing him because she didn't think he was too committed to the politics. She became a writer, but she was a more dedicated anarchist than he was. But he was related to anarchist thought and very radical in Sweden, right? Not the social democracy wing. He was more on the left. He actually visited the Soviet Union in 1934, and he was involved in communist ideas. Now, in 2019, this, sorry, 2018 was when it was premiered, a film called Aniara directed by Pella Kagerman and Hugo Lila, again, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the names, was premiered, a movie based on the poem Anyara. And it was given like a wider theatrical release in 2019, but it never blossomed to anything big, but it did get good criticisms and showed in the Toronto Film Festival and others, including the Utopia Film Festival, of which I am a part. And I actually saw this film like four times, (laughs) because of the festival so i watched it first just to see what it's about and to write my intro to it and then i watched it again when we screened it and then we did a private screening so i watched it a bunch of times and actually the first time i watched it i was really unaware into what i was stepping into and it took me by surprise because this film is very depressing yeah both in content and in atmosphere and i watched it alone at like 1 a.m and i think on one end it really magnified my enjoyment of the film because it was the right setting. On the other hand, it was like psychologically difficult. Yeah. I had to pause in the middle and go get a drink. So that's kind of the technical introduction to the film. Do you want to walk us through the premise? Yeah. So I think the premise is rather simple. You have a ship. It is supposed to bring people from Earth to Mars because of some probably climate change on Earth, like that's hinted, big fires, and the ship gets derailed from the course, and it's not obvious whether or not they can ever get back to their course. One of their engines kind of uh, has to release its fuel, so it's not clear that they can ever get back to Mars, and they have to 
kind of adapt to like this new knowledge and try to make do on this ship and it's very depressing because well because it's constructed to be depressing because space is very depressing it's not like humanity conquers space it's like space is horrific and dangerous yeah and i think it's also like it's not the shallow kind of depressing where it just lays on you with like sadness it's a more profound depression because there's a lot of good in the movie there's a lot to celebrate there's a lot of wins it's not just you know the badness continues and that's what makes the like inevitable failures like so depressing yeah before we get into spoiler territory i will say something about the film's structure that i really enjoyed there's a sort of structure to these movies you could call them disaster movies or survival movies Mm -hmm. well there's a very clear structure to the acts act one the thing happens that you ends up you know stranding you or putting you in a situation where you need to survive then the second step is you try to fight the first fight and you manage to survive but you understand in what huge mess you are third act is the hope like you discover what you need to do and then the first half of the fourth act is you're gonna fail you're gonna die it's all over and then you get saved and you triumph that is basically the structure and a lot of shows play around with that structure but that's basically what happens it's not just shows or films it's also books a few good examples would be true detective in a way even though it's not survival it still has that structure and things like lost and things of that sort alien the alien movies being survival movies have that structure i think i'll I'll link in the description a video by Lindsay ellis that explains like the act theory that everybody learns in film school and a lot of movies conform to it. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's a great essay by her. Unsurprisingly, she's very good. Yeah. But Aniara doesn't conform to these act structures. It has a lot of back and forths, a lot of, like you said, wins, but then also losses. And it functions much like actual hope and despair function. Right? It's not a linear sort of progression. By which I mean not constantly rising, but it's always a straight line, either up or down. Here it's kind of like loops and circles back on itself. And the last thing I like about the structure of the film is that some things just are. Not everything is revisited in this gotcha moment, or not everything is a foreshadowing. Some storylines are just kind of there. For example, one of the best examples, I think, is Mima, the AI. Yeah. There's an AI at the center of this story, which allows people to remember a serene Earth, a majestic Earth untouched by climate change and war and so on. And that is supposed to keep them sane as they make the traversal in deep space between Earth and Mars. And spoiler territory, Mima at some point gets destroyed by humanity's weight. Over-reliance on it. Exactly. By their demands and anger and fear and sadness and all that stuff. But that's not like, oh, if you had kept Mima alive, you would have been saved, right? It's not a MacGuffin. It's not that they find out at the last moment that if only Mima was still online, then they could make it to Mars, and human folly has undermined them, right? And maybe diving deeper into spoiler territory and starting our analysis of the actual narrative, 
I got to see this film with many sorts of people many times, and always the question came down to, is it that they could have saved them? They don't save themselves, okay? (laughs) They don't win. The story ends millions of years in the future, when the spaceship is basically a tomb floating in space, surrounding this star that they were always on a trajectory towards once they got diverted from their track, and they're all dead. They didn't manage to survive, they didn't manage to go back to Mars. Yeah, it's like everything is forgotten and pointless and and so on. And now the question is, could they have succeeded, but they were not good enough? Or was it always pointless from the first second? Like when the space debris that takes out the engine hits, does it matter at this point what they do? So I think the movie definitely wants you to ask that question. And I think one of my points is tangentially related to it, but I think the answer is that it always matters what they do, right? Like, whether or not they can turn the ship around, regardless of, like, what their trajectory of survival looks like, it matters what you do, right? So, I don't agree with that. I think the answer is neither, because I'm a smart ass. I think the film, <laughs> sure. and what I liked about it, is that it's ambiguous. And that ambiguity, I think, is most exemplified by the difference between the main character and her lover. So, by the way... That's that's interesting, because I have a point about the difference between the main character and the sort of antagonist that's also about this. But okay, let's talk about the the main character and the lover. By the way, trigger warning, suicide, depression, nihilism. Like, this is a very depressing film, so keep that in mind when listening to this. So, the main character doesn't have a name. She only has a role. Her role is Mima Robe. Yeah. And that is her job. She takes care of Mima. She like tells people how to use the AI. She takes care of the AI. She's a technician. And so on. Her lover is a pilot. And the pilots in this movie are very strict and Spartan and professional. It's kind of like the tension in Battlestar Galactica, right? Yeah. The civilians are viewed as hedonistic consumers and worthless members of society on the ship, while they are more powerful on the planet. But on the ship, the pilots are the elite because they actually keep everyone alive. So her lover, after giving birth, commits suicide, basically because she cannot handle space. She cannot handle the void, the emptiness. And she kind of succumbs to that anxiety of looking out the window and seeing nothingness and actually coming to the realization, because she's a pilot and she knows what they can and can't do, that they've lost, that it's over. It's just a matter of time. While the main character perseveres and insists on pushing forward. In fact, one of the most unsettling scenes in the film is the scene before last where she and the last remnants of the ship are emaciated. They no longer have any food. They're in the room that Mima used to occupy, which is turned into some sort of ritualistic site, and they are praying for light. And again, light as the counter to the darkness of space. And when I first saw this scene... First of all, it's a shocking scene. Right? It's very depressing. Yeah, we should say sad. the movie has a kind the... of exponential build where 
the time yeah. differences between scenes escalate. And this is a jump, I don't remember yeah. how long, but like 10 years forward, something like that. So that's part of the shock. And like you yeah. move from a state in which the ship is obviously like dysfunctional, but still like there are people, they're working for their food. And like in a couple of years, like everything is just like super gone. So there's no light. There's... So that's the setup, right? Because when the lover kills herself, the main character's position is, I know things are bad, but we can still salvage this. And other movies would then show you them trying to salvage it and only in the end realizing that it's lost. But here it's a cold cut. There's a title screen and it's like 25 years later and it's all gone. Like there's no hope. There's nothing left. It's not a question of if she will be proven correct for having killed herself or if I will be proven correct for choosing to live. It's done. There's nothing left to do, right? Except pray and hold on to a hope that is inherently non-justified, right? You're inherently at the end. And when I first saw that scene, the first thing that came to mind is Karl Marx and the opium of the people, Mm -hmm. right? That often misquoted phrase. Well, and just uh, to read it, so in case people have never heard, I'm not going to read the full thing. Somehow never heard it. Yeah, somehow never. I think a lot of people haven't heard the full thing, right? Mostly because a contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right is not exactly Marx's most accessible or, I would say, relevant to most people. And this is a side note, remember, this opium of the masses. It's not the main thrust of the article. But the idea is this. Religious suffering is, at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion, as the illusory happiness of the people, is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is, therefore, in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. And I think that last sentence is much better than opium of the people, and that's the one that should have like yeah. echoed through the test of time. You have a veil of tears, you have a terrible condition on earth, and religion puts a pretty line around it, right? Religion paints in the blanks with gold color and says, no, that suffering, that those terrible conditions that you're suffering under, they're actually good. So the problem is not religion. The problem is the condition that religion is hiding. And I think for me, the connection with that Anyarasin was so powerful because they've given up hope, they've accepted their condition, they know that they're going to die, and the last thing they still have remaining to them is that they cling to religion. And now to bring it full circle to the question that I posed to you, and that I said the film was ambiguous about, both the characters are correct. The lover is correct for having committed suicide because she was right. There was no hope. And they had a kid. So it's not just that she would have to starve and watch her lover have to starve. Also, they they would have to watch their child starve alongside all the other people that they know, which is just terrible, awful suffering. So she saved herself all of that by taking her own life. While the Mima robe was also correct because they didn't know that that's how it would end. They didn't know that those conditions 
would come to pass. There was always a chance to fight against it and try to create a better condition. But instead of showing her triumphing, the film says at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether you fight or you give up. Yeah, your point about religion is interesting because it really echoes a similar critique from Nietzsche. So Nietzsche criticizes about religion, what he calls resentment, which is basically mm-hmm. sanctifying your opposition to something and reveling in it. So he said that religion helps the peasants kind of like feel superior to the lords who are somehow corrupt or something. And it makes them, instead of work to solve the problems of their oppression, it makes them kind of worship the oppression and put it up on a pedestal and, you know, claim that it's good actually. It's good actually that they're suffering. So... And the meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah, exactly. And Nietzsche wants us to be Ubermenschen, which doesn't really fit within Anyara, but I think that Anyara is nihilist in this sense as well, that it says the suffering doesn't sanctify you. You don't get a Jesus moment where, like, the fact that you've suffered somehow delivers you. Yeah, and it also, I think it has interesting things to say about the moment that we find ourselves in. Like all good science fiction, it's not about the future, it's about the present, right? Both Anyara the poem and Anyara the film. Yeah. And I think it makes a really interesting point, which is really salient right now as we're in the weeks after the American election. Mm-hmm. And a hot take coming in. The chief pilot of Aniara saying, don't question my authority because we're all in this together and we need to figure out a way to rescue ourselves from this situation and make it better. And I am the figure of authority and therefore rebelling against me is bad is exactly what the Biden campaign did to the left. So I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of juxtapositions between him and Biden. But yeah, I think that works, too. Yeah. So the story is Trump is a fascist and it doesn't matter that Joe Biden sucks because anything is better than fascism. And if you double click on what's relevant for Aniara, climate change as well, like yeah. Donald Trump will strip, is stripping the EPA of all its powers, he signed out of the Paris Accords, he is pro-fracking, all that stuff. So it's true that Biden is a conservative on climate, but at least he's not Trump. Yeah. And then, because of that bullshit, because of the left's recruitment in favor of Biden, which is totally what happened, Mm -hmm. Biden becomes president, and then he turns around and just shits all over that, yeah. By you're right, he's not literally on a horse hunting bald eagles and <laughs> eating them on live television, but he appoints that fucking lunatic Moritz or whatever his name is, who's like yeah. in the pocket of the coal industry. He appoints fucking Reach Across the Isle Kerry as his climate czar. I still can't believe that's the actual title of that position. Yeah. And he'll sign back into the Paris Accords, but that's fucking meaningless. Nothing, almost, yeah. Nothing. So the real narrative, and that's again the exact narrative that Aniara points out, is that there's no real difference between Joe Biden and Trump. And Trump is not a break in the progression of neoliberalism in the United States. It's not Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush Jr., 
Obama, mm, nothing, we don't talk about that, that was a mistake, Biden. It's not that. It's a part of the same continuum, right? But to excuse it, to make sure that people don't notice that it's part of the continuum, they weaponize this idea of the emergency, which is exactly what happens on Niara. Like the rule of the cults and the rule of might is exactly the same as the rule of the authoritarian captain. But he constantly weaponizes the need for hierarchy and the need for control to set himself apart from chaos when there's actually no difference between the two options. Yeah. So I want to tie a bow around that topic. And to tie a bow, I'm going to make two or three loops around it, as you do when you tie a bow. So let me initiate first loop. So what happens in Aniara is that once this string off course happens, it becomes obvious that a trip that was supposed to last three weeks will last at least three years. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that the people who are kind of running the ship become the people who are running this society. And yeah. the movie kind of, you know, hints at it, at like the kind of abnormality of it with subtle gestures. Like when they give the first message, this woman says like, I was supposed to be in time for my son's birthday or something like that. And like, it's a kind of customer demand. And that reminds you that like the relationship between these two people, like this head pilot, he's not their leader. They didn't elect him or anything. They paid for a ticket to a place. He was just supposed to deliver them there. And now he's Mm -hmm. kind of running this society. And he's running this society, even though, I mean, the thing that happens with Aniara is is an accident, right? The initiating factor. It's not hinted that he's exactly to blame for it, which I think is actually a good touch because I think it's not that the people in charge in our respective countries are themselves, you know, killing the environment. But they were the people in charge while that was happening. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of weird that they kind of slide into a position of going back into leadership. And the reason they go into leadership is because of a kind of established power structure, right? Like who else is going to lead this expedition? And it's shown that like the guards have tasers, they have weapons, they have the capacity to inflict violence, they have holding cells. They have all of this infrastructure, even though nobody like got on the ship to be ruled by this like weird class of hyper pilots. And are pilots good at running a society? Well, not so much as we like find out. So there's two elements I want to highlight about this. One of them is the way that from fear and from tragedy, we, it activates our conservative feeling of like getting back to the familiar, getting back to power structure and how like wrong, like profoundly wrong that is, like how that leads (laughs) us to repeating mistakes. That's exactly Joe Biden. Like that's Joe Biden didn't win because, I mean, the Democratic primaries or the election, right? He didn't win the Democratic primaries because there was a huge force of people who, like, really wanted Joe Biden. He won because people were like, something really bad happened. And it was definitely a wrong turn. So we need to, like, head back and try to, like, go back to where we were. So this instinct of, like, going back to where we were actually leads you to relying on old power structures. 
So instead of picking the, you know, someone more radical, like I think you can guess, like who would be my preference in a democratic primary, but <laughs> like people go back to someone who, and this is shown like poll after poll, or if you talk to people, nobody likes this person. Like there's nothing to like about him. He doesn't even try to make you like him. Like he's, he has a kind of like sincere candor, like that's something he has going for him, but that's about it. So that's like the defaulting to Joe Biden. It's the defaulting to like a secure power source. And it's profoundly wrong because that's the power source that was in control as we got to the situation. It cannot be the solution to the situation. And the second thing is that this is Naomi Klein's shock doctor. This mm-hmm. is exactly the idea that every time there's a crisis, we think, okay, how are we going to respond to this crisis? Probably people will come together and solve their problems. But what happens is that we live under capitalism. So capitalism kind of like rushes in, it privatizes the public infrastructure when it's at its weakest, when people are like dying for an influx of resources and manpower. It employs people in like terrible conditions. She tells stories about, I think it's after working Katerina, how like people were employed below minimum wage because of like, you know, laws that allowed the companies that were doing the cleanup to employ people. Like it's all terrible, right? Yeah. You know, worker protection gets uh, dialed back. And this happens in Aniara like exactly the same, right? Like people are thrown in prison and then like they're told if you want to get out of prison, you have to work. And, and also work the shitty jobs with the algae, right? With the uh, yeah. water purification systems. Yeah, people have no freedom in what they're going to work. They get assigned to jobs. So the place yeah. starts basically, and this is a second point I can get to, in a bit, the place starts running like a, basically a concentration camp. And like, this is exactly how power structures like assert themselves. So they're already in power. And once there's crisis, I think it's a mistake to think that people don't have like the power to deal with crisis. And I think this is the conflict between the Mimaroba and the pilot whose name I don't care to remember, because <laughs> she represents something else. Like I call this point, why do we walk? So they both have a different theory about what's going on. And for him, it's about there's a crisis. I'm going to fix the crisis. So now you have to do everything I say and you have to do everything I say because that's the only way we're going to fix the crisis. And for her, it's about what do people want? How can we make people happy? You know, how do we create a society that's pleasant for everyone to live in? Yeah. I think, though, that she is really... Okay, this is a Swedish film, right? And a Swedish poem. And I think that she, in a way, represents the moderate leftist, the social democrat, right? She wants to make a better society that works for everyone. And she has to shop around and consider her allies. Consider the people who are supposed to help her make that society a reality because she doesn't have the power herself right and you can see that over and over again it's like in the way that she does the cues to mima there becomes this influx when the ship just launches you know it's three days to mars who needs like this weird ai thing but then when they still think it's a few months people start to clamor for the service and she starts to hand out places in the queue but she feels bad about it she wants the justification of authority, so she goes to the captain, right? Yeah, and that's she, for more manpower. 
Exactly. To ask for more manpower and also to ask for his, like, you, can you step in here and tell me what to do? Yeah. Right? So if I want to go one step further, another hot take coming in now from the philosophy angle, this could actually be read as a critique of Plato's Republic. Okay. Right? Like, you have the person who you're speaking with, which is uh, Glaucon and Adamantus, right? And they basically just want people to be good and to yeah. be happy. And they're talking to Socrates about how that can be done. And then Socrates, or Plato's answer, actually, through Socrates' mouth, you know, Republic is on the pivot between the early Socratic texts, which probably have more Socrates in them than the late ones. So it's really hard to discern which part of the Republic is Plato and which is actually, quote-unquote, Socrates. Mm -hmm. So their answer is the philosopher king, right? But below the philosopher king are the guards. Yeah. Right, this hyper-professional, hyper-controlled Spartan, although that's a weird yeah. example in the Athenian case, cast of people who are the arbiters of immediate authority. Right? The philosopher kings like lead the vision, lead the future, lead the political way, but those that enforce and in many cases also arbitrate justice are these guards. Right? And the Mima Roba is Glaucon and Adamantus, right? She's asking around, how can we make the society function? How can we make people good and happy? And she turns to all these answers. She turns to the guards, to the cast of authoritarians, and she gets the authoritarian answer. Yeah. Right? Unlike in Socrates' example, that for some reason the guards are like, you know, he glosses over that part, right? Like, why would the guards even obey? Oh, we would educate them yeah. to obey. And the film is like, excuse me, What? No, that doesn't work. The authoritarians will be authoritarian. And then she turns to the religious answer because some cults, and by the way, it's very clear that it was edited from the film and there are a lot more scenes with the mm -hmm. cults, I think. They play a more prominent role in the poem and there's a lot of cuts in that scene, in that part of the movie. So I think they had more material that they cut for brevity. But she turns to these cults to give her meaning and again, to regulate how people behave with one another. But then the answer there is, well, you have the high priestess and she kind of says what goes and whatever her whims are. And also, there's no practical solutions to anything. There's just hedonism and there's just that halo around the veil yeah. of tears, right? And then her last answer, which I think is really interesting, and I mentioned Kierkegaard last time and I'll mention him again, and the ethical man is the ethical man solution. A family, duty, protecting those you love, having children, Loving someone Working else. Working on a communal project. That falls apart. He works in like making this, this yeah. projector that's going to replace Mima. Right. To make things, you know, more bearable for everyone. And that also falls apart in our hands because her familiar unit is not an atom. Right? It's not isolated. It is connected to the larger problem. So she goes through all of these answers, kind of like Socrates does, but the movie does it with a more critical eye. Yeah. Right? And maybe one of the criticisms that could be levied against the movie is, okay, then what? Right? Like, if none of these things are sufficient, well, I think, then what is sufficient? So I think, and this is a reading, like, you don't have to agree, but I think the thing she never does is challenge power structures. She yeah. works within power structures. She doesn't always obey power structures, but she doesn't try to topple them. And I think the movie is saying, like, and I'll get to it in different points. Maybe I'll, I'll get to a second point. Now, I'm, our usual point structure, I'm not sure it, <laughs> it can withstand this movie. 
so <laughs> so let's talk about like the kind of aesthetics of this hierarchy and again because what i'm trying to show is that the movie is critical of the hierarchy and the movie isn't very critical of her the movie doesn't think that she's a bad person for not challenging authority in that way but i think that's where the failure comes yeah. from that the authority was never challenged enough so the aesthetic of Anyara, of the ship, the ship is called Anyara, is very reminiscent of an airport. It has these mm-hmm. escalators, it has like elevators that look like an airport, it has like a place that looks like the duty-free area. An airport or a mall. Yeah, and it's not coincidental that these two places look the same. When reading the yeah. description of the movie, I read something about like, in the description, there was something like, the people on the ship that are used to consume a lot are distraught by this event and that they cannot consume anymore or something like that. But I don't think the movie is so heavy-handed yeah. with that. Like, people are distressed, but it's not like, you know, Wally, where, like, they're, like, these hyper-consumers that, like, constantly want more things and, like, they're really upset that they can't have more things. They're legitimately ups- upset mm-hmm. by the really bad thing that happened to them. So... Like, I get that there's also a mall analogy here, and I think it functions, but I want to talk a little bit about airports, because there's a really good video essay that I think also you like about airport security that this really reminded me of. And the title of the, it's by uh, Oliver Thorne, and the title of it is, When Will Airport Security Go Back to Normal? And I think that works here Mm -hmm. in several ways. So, first of all, First promise that the crew, the pilots, make to the passengers is that they're working on getting things back to normal. And they constantly lie to maintain this illusion. Things are eventually going to go back to normal. So right now what you need to do is do whatever we say because we are working on getting things back to normal. Whereas, and this is the answer in Ollie's video too, there isn't any, like, progress towards getting back to normal. That's just not happening. And again, like Joe Biden rises here with his famous phrase of like, nothing will fundamentally change. We're never going back to normal. There isn't a normal to go back to. Yeah, Joe Biden's not going to cancel the Patriot Act. I think, so I think there's something weird about the Patriot Act. It was already canceled and replaced by something else. Like, but yeah, he's not going to challenge any of like the military industrial complex. He doesn't yeah. have a like comprehensive plan for dealing with climate change. and. More importantly, like the demons that were kind of like let out in the criticisms of Trump, they're not going back in the bottle. These problems were there during the Obama reign. We're not just going to forget about them. Like maybe the people will be lulled back into like, I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe people will like lose their political edge again. But the problems aren't going away. The problems are still here. So things aren't going back to normal. But the second thing that connects this to that video essay is the way in which the power of security is insidious and it creeps up on you so like just imagine people like signing up for a three-week voyage and when they signed up like they didn't even consider that for a time they're giving their rights to a person who's going to like dictate he's the dictator of this ship you know the, the temporary becomes the permanent here but i think the movie like has a way of like making me ask what kind of hierarchies do i agree to because I think they're temporary, because I think they're just for accomplishing, mm-hmm. they're just for this context, 
but then do I actually like go back and check that they've actually been dissolved? Because hierarchies don't like to dissolve. Hierarchies like to maintain themselves. And, you know, you can think about it even when boarding a bus. I remember yeah. there was a thing back about what happens if someone gets sexually harassed on a bus? Like, what is the bus driver going to do about it? And I think, like, the bus companies came out with this thing that if a woman goes to the bus driver and says that she's been harassed, like, he has to go to the police station. So that's a question, right? Like, you're putting your trajectory in the hands of someone else. And it's always interesting, like, who holds this authority? What are the limits of that authority? And it's really interesting when that authority, like, extends itself in a way that wasn't planned. Yeah, I think there's another really good example of that. And I think that's an excellent point. The creeping death of freedom or political forms that is always assuaged by, oh, this is just temporary. And then yeah. you look up and you notice you're living in, well, 2020 <laughs> and nothing has been rolled back. There was this whole thing with Twitter marking yeah. Trump's tweets as fraudulent, right? And a lot of people rejoiced oh, Twitter is taking it to the fake news, whatever. But, like, why does Twitter have the authority to decide what statement is false or not false? Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Trump supporter and everything he said was a lie. But what makes you think they won't do that when, I mean, it's never going to happen because Joe Biden is on the side of big tech, right? But when Joe Biden tweets something about like how Proposition 22 in California is a terrible law, again, he won't do that because Kamala Harris's family yeah. is literally the guys who made that proposition. But if he does that, do you think that Twitter won't flag that as false, even though it's true? Or forget Joe Biden, like think about the future. Like in 10 years, we have someone else entirely, hopefully, as, as the president. Like, what are you seeding? for the sake of a temporary battle and a momentary problem to companies or hierarchies that have a longer memory than you do because they're institutions, right? They have institutional memory that is much more powerful than your ability to keep track of them. Yeah. And I think like the anarchist answer is we want to dissolve all unjust hierarchies or all hierarchies depending on which hierarchies you're talking to. So an anarchist would say, yeah, yeah I, I don't like Trump. And it's a momentary feeling of happiness to see like someone I don't like getting owned because anarchists shouldn't like Trump. <laughs> but then you think like, I can be happy about him being owned in this like specific context, but then immediately think about how power is coagulating in these very few companies and how we don't have an alternative if we have an Aniara situation, right? A situation in which, like, suddenly we need to do a very anti-Twitter thing and, like, our platform for connecting with each other and passing our radical ideas is Twitter. You know, a lot of people are like, yeah. if you're on YouTube, you can't be anti-capitalist because YouTube wouldn't allow that. And I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> like, I think that's thinking that these... It's just not how power works, right? I, I think... One of the things that we've mentioned in previous episodes, and I think is relevant here as well, especially to your point of how she conforms to existing power structures, is the idea of how capitalism or any hegemony co-opts anything that is not radical enough, right? If you don't challenge the very fabric of the system, and again, we're both Marxists, so that means yeah. the modes of production and the means of production. If you don't have a materialist analysis and alternative at the base of your movement, 
you will get co-opted because you're not threatening the actual foundation and the actual raison d'etre of the system. YouTube, Twitter, General Motors, Shell, the US government, the Israeli government, all these bodies exist to do one thing, make profit, exploit workers, continue the hierarchy that enables the capitalist mode of production, right? And bringing it back to Aniara, all her protestations, all her fights with authority, they're never about why are you the ones giving us orders? Yeah. She never makes that extra step. She doesn't push for an election. She doesn't say like... Exactly. We should run things differently. She doesn't try to secure the algae farms or anything like that. She's always trying to work within the system. Right. And the allure, again, like you said, that keeps her working for the system is just wait. In a week, it will get better. In a year, it will get better. And if that sounds familiar to you, that's because that's what they're doing to us now. Right? Like this idea, I don't know if you remember when we were in a symposium in Tel Aviv University and there was a guy that told us, what are you worried about? The free market is going to fix climate change. And I made the mistake of starting to converse with him when I should have asked him, when? When? When is that happening? And if you say anything that is less than, sorry, more than two years, then this discussion is irrelevant because... We don't have the time. Like all the 12 years bullshit, that's nonsense. Forget about it. It's done. Like climate change, the only question is how bad is it going to be? Not if it's going to happen, because it's already happening. Another question is maybe the free market can fix climate change. Who knows? Like the free market has fixed a lot of things in the past. But when? And how much will it fix? Yeah, because, I, and I think this is like also done very well in Nanya. Climate change has already happened is already killing people, is already causing yeah. like massive damage. So the free market has already failed to fix climate change. Yeah. And, you know, Aniara is already off track. Like, that's already happened. And yeah. they're lying when they say, like, oh, it's just a few years. We have to get accountability as, you know, as soon as we can, right? Like, I think it's kind of delusional to say, like, oh, we could have an anarchist utopia here in six months, but that's not really the point. The point is, at any point, whether it's now or in 20 years, whenever we see an opportunity for, you know, dismantling some part of power, power is already fucking up. There's already legitimacy in taking power away from the existing power structures. Yeah. We don't need to wait for them to fail. They've already failed. There is no reason to think that they haven't failed. And I even think like it's important to know, and I sometimes talk to like more left-leaning people about this, like when you think about the future, expect capitalism to have a solution to climate change. It will have a solution. Capitalists aren't lizard folk. They're not going to live below the ground hoarding wealth. They have no reason to do it. They don't want to live on a dying planet. And they can read the science. They know what they're doing. It's not about whether or not there's going to be a solution. There is going to be a solution. And it's going to be marketed to you as capitalism saving you. That's 100% going to happen. It's happening now a little bit, but like it's 100% going to happen, no doubt. We have to be ready to say, no, you fucked this up. And this is like my last point, which is like taken from Mad Max Fury Road, like this powerful question of who killed the world that the mm-hmm. wives there ask. Who killed the world? And in Aniara, the answer is the pilots killed the world. They fucked it up. They already fucked it up. So 
when they say like, we're solving it, of course they're trying to solve it. Of course they're doing a thing that they think will do well, you know, by pretty much everyone. They're not like evil creatures, but they want to do it within the framework that keeps them in power. And this is the thing about what the capitalist solution for climate change will be. It will exist, there will be a solution, but it will be such a solution that maintains power at the top to the degree possible. It's worse than that. I don't think it's going to maintain power at the top. I think it's going to expand power at the top. Of course, yes. Like they used everything else so far, they are going to use this to immiserate us further. Right? They are going to use this to exploit workers further. They're already doing it. Right? They're already fucking the whole, you know, gig economy. Yeah. Quote unquote. Is that's nothing but capitalism's undermining whatever little advances we made in the last 100 years of labor movements, right? Yeah, and I think my best analogy here was actually not to climate change, though climate change works, but to the coronavirus, because we're at the turning point of like starting to get vaccines pretty soon, and we're going to hear about how capitalism kind of like solved, we're already, I don't know if you're reading them, but I'm reading hot takes from capitalists who are like, look how the free market provided us a vaccine. And like, of course, that's nonsense because, you know, the scientists that work on this were trained in governmental institutions. They were, the companies were given money from government. Like, it's all bullshit. But capitalism is giving solution. Of course, it's giving a solution. It doesn't want everybody to be sick because then they can't work. And they keep killing each other and the rich people aren't immune to the coronavirus. So they have a solution, but they already fucked up. They already fucked up yeah. in the US. 250,000 people are dead. That's a fuck up. It already happened. And it is somewhat Trump's fault, but it's the fault of so much of like the private sector pushing people to get back to work, not providing them the PPE that they need, washing, you know, worker organization to try to get better conditions. Yeah. So let me step in here with my last point, which is one of the most brilliant parts of the film, and that is the spear. Yeah. That's one of the episode titles in the movie like the act titles it's called the spear at some point aniara detects an object a man-made object that will make a pass next to the ship in a distance that is safe to say or at least it appears to be not a coincidence right it's too close yeah. they come up with this plan to grab this object and they manage to bring it on board and the assumption is that, you know, someone on Earth noticed, or on Mars or whatever, noticed that the ship is off course and they haven't arrived, and they managed to, you know, somehow calculate their trajectory, and, you know, it's space, right? Newton's laws, it's going to keep on the same trajectory, and we can send an object after them, and that object will have yeah. fuel, most probably, some sort of way to get the ship back on course. And that becomes a big celebration on the ship. We have the object. We're going to figure it out. And who is going to figure it out? The scientists. Right? The scientists are going to analyze this object and understand how to use it. But here's the thing. That never happens. They can't figure out how to open the object. It has no recesses or like a door or a mechanism then they think maybe the object is the fuel, right? Like maybe it's uranium condensed to some sort yeah. of form. Maybe there have been technological advances in the last year or two years that pass when the object arrives to the ship and they start to try and analyze it, but they fail. It's just an inert object, or at least they can't figure out how to activate it if it's not, which kind of goes back to the question, could they have done something else? Like if they were smart enough 
could they have figured out yeah. the spiel. But here's why I love the spiel. One is that it says, guess what? Coincidences, those like slim chances, if you multiply it by the size of the universe, there's like a 100% probability that anything will happen, right? So a satellite going really close next to your ship can totally be a coincidence. And there's no intent, and there's no guiding hand, and there's nothing guaranteeing that anything that you are about to experience is intended, mm-hmm. right? It is not meant for you. It is just an event, which is really interesting in the context of climate change, right? Because we can't help anthropomorphize nature. Like when people see a storm, they inherently think about nature is angry. Nature doesn't give a shit. Like nature is incapable of recognizing you and having emotions and it just happens. Hurricane Katrina just happened. It was influenced by climate change and made more frequent and more terrible, of course, but it just happened. And then the second point, which I think is more important, you should not focus on what is going to happen, what are the events, and let's look forward to the events and react to them properly, but you should think about the systems that are in place when the event will occur. That event and how you can react to it and what it will do to you is dependent on the systems that you already have in place. Once the event has happened, it is too late to change anything you will react with the mechanisms that are already in place for you to react. For example, the coronavirus. The coronavirus inherently exposes inequality and the systemic conditions under which we live, and there is nothing we can do about it. Because even if we were all suddenly turned into socialist (laughs) radicals and we took over government, it would take decades to fix racism and the inequality from racism and the gender gap and stuff like that, right? That's actually already in Marx. After the Paris Commune, in an edition of the Communist Manifesto, he says that the proletariat can't just like take control of the uh, power of the state and expect it to just like function. The state needs to be dismantled yeah. and reassembled in a better way. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you see with the coronavirus. So the vaccine is not a solution. The vaccine is a band-aid designed to allow the system to stay in place. Now, don't get me wrong. I am going to get vaccinated because I don't want to die. And I don't want to kill people around me. I'm going to get vaccinated. And the vaccine is not like a hoax because that's not how things work. But it is an out for the system. Instead of looking at the results and say, coronavirus disproportionately affected the people around the globe who don't have homes, instead of saying we should give them homes, they will vaccinate them. And looking at African-American and Latino populations in the United States and how they are disproportionately affected by this disease because of a myriad of systemic conditions, they will vaccinate them instead of fixing the systemic conditions. Or instead of doing both, they will just do the one. And they will just wait until the next pandemic. Yeah. Because people will forget by then that the systemic issues were the point. Now, my last point around this is the complacency and the complicit nature of the technocratic scientific establishment. Just like in Aniara, the pilot hierarchy collaborates with the scientists to 
use the spear to keep things going for another few months, to give people hope and stop them from collapsing for a little while longer. And the scientists, even though they have no idea what they're doing, and in fact, side note, they kill the one scientist who actually thinks yeah. that, continue to say, business as usual, we're going to figure it out, don't worry. It's the same fucking thing that is happening with the coronavirus. Well, the mainstream establishment of scientists, by which I mean people who get interviewed for the big newspapers and the big magazines, yeah. are focused around this discourse of how do we stop this vaccine? What do we need to do with this vaccine? And I'm not hearing enough voices. They are definitely out there, but there are not enough of them and they're not famous enough saying, listen, forget this pandemic. We know how to solve this pandemic. By the way, we know how to solve coronavirus. We know what to do, right? It's just that our systems are incapable of doing it. So forget this for a moment. Let's talk about what happens in the next pandemic and how we reconfigure our society so that public health is increased. They're not saying that because they are in collaboration, not because they are evil, not because they're comic book villains sitting in their penthouses, although some of them <laughs> yeah. fucking are, right? Like, don't forget who Pfizer and Moderna and all these guys are. These are not, yeah, they're not on your world. side. These people are not on your side. Yeah, they killed the world. They are part of it. They are fucking filthy billionaires and they will be even richer because of this, right? So instead of saying, look, here is the scientific community's agreement that the entire fucking planet needs to change if we want to avoid another pandemic or worse, they are focused on masks and vaccines and social distancing and all that stuff. Again, which is all good and correct and should be done. But we're not going the step further to look at how these systems are changing. And one of the suggestions that I saw online, last point, is that this is not a pandemic, it's a syndemic. It's a systemic yeah. problem. What kills? Coronavirus doesn't kill or doesn't kill in large numbers to be a pandemic on its own. It kills in conjunction with systemic issues that lead yeah. to death. In a, a, a better society, it doesn't kill on a mass level. And if you want proof of that, just look at Vietnam. Vietnam, Taiwan, Korea... Yeah, in Korea, it's different because Korea is also a capitalist society, right? And also had a lot of problems with its response. But yeah, it's not even about capitalism or not capitalism. It's not just that. It's like a more recruited, centralized, effective, and less privatized. They can still do public works. Like you said to me once yeah. that capitalism has demolished our ability to create public work. And yeah. in Korea, they seem to not have lost that capacity. By the way, specifically in the context of pandemics, I think, because I heard that this has a lot to do with their experience with SARS that hit them like way harder than it hit the West. So they sure. were like prepared. But they were also prepared to actually learn from SARS, yeah. which is something that we are incapable of fucking doing. Like we can't learn from plagues. Like for fuck's sake, there was an Ebola outbreak that reached the United States like five years ago. Does everybody remember that? It was five years ago. It wasn't two decades ago. Yeah. It was a credible threat of an Ebola pandemic in the United States that was stopped. And we learned a bunch of shit from that. Don't get me wrong, I fucking hate Obama. I hate him so much. But he had things to say and his administration had things to say. And those things were just completely ignored because money, because profit, because changing systemic issues is too fucking expensive for the fucking ghouls that decide how we live, right? Yeah, so there's a good piece in Current Affairs about how a lot of 
hospitals are private and for a private business being efficient means not having any basically any emergency stuff because that's inefficient that's like extra things you pay for and maintain that you don't usually use so you lose money on them so the piece kind of shows how this model of efficiency when applied to health just means be unprepared for a pandemic and yeah the idea is sorry yeah so i just gotta stop you i know we're at the end and this is like a whole other topic but i think there was also like knee-jerk reactions on the left and i made that mistake as well to talk about just-in-time medicine Mm -hmm. and how just-in-time medicine was to blame for this so in case you're not familiar with the concept dear listeners just-in-time means that i don't keep a stockpile in the warehouse and then i have to maintain it and pay money for its storage but i import using really fast supply chains what i need instantaneously as demand arises right the problem with that is when demand spikes my supply chain cannot meet the demand and the whole thing collapses so a lot of people were very quick to say that's what happened with health and now there are a string of new essays and research and stuff like that showing that it's more complicated than that so it still serves our point but in a different way it's not that just in time is the problem in fact just in time is probably a really good solution guess what when run under socialism right because the problem is that the supply chain itself is made so lean so quote-unquote efficient so beholden to the capriciousness of the corporate center that it cannot meet the demand the problem is not the model just in time can work the problem is the infrastructure that is completely gutted to serve the corporate interest right so it's like one step further and maybe just to wrap this up and like tie this back to Aniara, right the mistake that the Mimaro made and this is your point right is that she kept trying to use the same tools the same processes that got them to the situation they were and it's beyond just the ship it's the same processes that got the earth to where it was to yeah. the point where they had to abandon it right that's the processes that are being replicated and she tries to use those tools to save herself and to save the people she loves without understanding that those tools including mima by the way including the ai yeah those tools are what got them in that situation in the first place because without mima you can't do that passage to mars so mima doesn't fix the fact that earth is burning it just gives them a way out towards a different planet which by the way sucks they mentioned that there's just turnips there right it's like really awful living conditions so i guess this all comes back to the very old and tried and true saying the master's house will not be torn apart by the master's tools it won't there is no solving our problems that we face for capitalism or rather like you said there will be solutions but they will fucking suck (laughs) remind me of the phrase they left ruin behind them when they returned, but they also carried ruin with them. Is that a motherfucking Tolkien reference, my friend? I think it's a specifically Blind Guardian <laughs> singing about <laughs> Tolkien, but sure. Anyway, just to, like, my rap around it is to connect it to our last episode, and because we had two episodes now that are very much about climate, and I think, like, this might be a theme going forward, because as we said last episode, like, there's no left that doesn't talk about climate, because climate is like the big deal not that all other societal problems are not problems they're just like caught up within climate change as well and 
I think if annihilation on an epistemological level, on a metaphysical level, on a level of our connection to nature kind of like tries to show us a different way, Aniara tries to like show us what are the structures that are holding us back. And even if we try to, you know, find our successes within them and find our happiness within them, it's, I don't want to say it's all doomed because I don't think like the end of Aniara makes sense for Aniara because it's a ship in space. I don't think like the human population is going to evaporate. I always repeat this. It's just everything is going to suck unless we we get rid of these terrible systems. So yeah, and just yeah. sorry that I'm like saying one last thing after I said one last thing, but one last thing: we are not doomers, right? We are not black pilled. Yeah, we are not saying that there's no hope, and Aniara is not saying that either. I think Aniara is saying you're not in this situation. You're not on a ship in space hurtling towards infinity without any recourse. And we're also saying there is an alternative. There is always an alternative because capitalism is not this monster. It's not this Lovecraftian horror. You don't need a Vorpal sword plus five to kill it. You just, it's not inevitable. You just need to seize the means of production. We know the answer. We know what we need to do. Now it's fucking terrible and how the fuck do we do that and holy shit, the left is like on its back foot for the last 40 fucking years. I get it. But it's not Aniara. It's not an infinitely complex machine that has failed us and now we're hurtling towards our inevitable doom. We can still turn this around. We can still solve what we're facing and do better. But in order to do that, we need to find new tools and new ways of controlling our environment and controlling yeah, and this our will lives. be 20, 20 years as well 20 years if we haven't done anything and we haven't succeeded in anything yeah. things will be worse everything will be even worse and still there will be a possibility of changing things for the better like yeah so you mentioned the theme of like climate change so I, I want to do a new thing and tell our listeners what we're going to be doing next So if they want to, they can follow along and we will endeavor to always have the next topic teed up for you by the time we record so that you know what we're going to do. So the next thing we're going to talk about is An Unkindness of Ghosts, which is a book by Rivers Solomon, who is a very good author and I am loving this book so far. Let me ask you a riddle. How is Rivers Solomon connected to an earlier episode of our podcast? Are you asking the reader the riddle? The listener, sorry? No, I'm asking you. No, I know. She wrote The Deep with clipping. Yeah. We've actually already mentioned her on the cast before. And The Kindness of Ghosts is a generation ship story, which is kind of like, you know, fits into Aniara pretty well. And also has themes of climate change and environment, stuff like that. And of course, a lot of racial tension and, and stuff like that. So that's what we're going to be doing next. In case you want to pick up the book and read before we do. Yeah, it's recommended. Heavily recommended. So, besides reading for that, what have you been reading, watching, listening to? So, I've been doing a few things. One, I'm still reading Marx's 18th of Brumaire. Mm-hmm. And I really can't recommend this book enough. Article, essay, whatever you want to call it. It's so well written. It is a bit esoteric because it's like a very specific period in French history. But... It's amazing how salient the points are for anyone who lives in the US and in Israel and in Europe. It's really incredible. So that's one thing I've been reading. 
I've also been reading, I finished Ring Shout, which is a really cool book about hunting supernatural KKK monsters in the early 20th that, century. That was a phrase. Uh, it's really good. It's about like, what if the KKK was just a front for like interdimensional beings and three African-American women who have like magical powers hunt them. It's a really good book. Okay, cool. And I'll do like a shoe in I'm actually going to cover it on the next episode of Death Sentence, which is another mm-hmm. podcast I'm on. We're going to be talking about that. That's it. And how about yourself? So besides unkindness, I've only been reading like boring metaphysics stuff because I have a metaphysics class. But I've been listening to the original soundtrack, not the Broadway soundtrack, of Hadestown. And I just mm-hmm. remembered of how it's a deeply anti-capitalist play. It basically takes mm. the Orpheus and Eurydice story and says, what if it's about capitalism, actually? Yeah. And in there, Eurydice is like the working class. Orpheus is like a vanguard guy. He's like a visionary artist, but also like he has plans for a better world. Like the first song is about like, she's worried about how they're going to feed themselves. And he's like, after I finish my magnum opus, like nature will just like provide us. And it's basically saying Mm -hmm. like, after we dismantle capitalism, scarcity will be gone. (laughs) And like very explicitly, like I'm not making all of this up. Hades is very clearly like a capitalist boss. But it goes even further, like Persephone is very clearly like liberalism. She's like, you know, tied, mm. tied up with capitalism, but tries to make it a little bit nicer. But like, it's ineffective in the end. So it's all just like, listen to the soundtrack and think about how you hate capitalism. It works. Awesome. Sounds good. Cool. So thank you for listening. And by the way, thank you to Insta for our intro and outro music we haven't said in a while. Yeah. That's my band, by the way, guys, if you want to check it out. Yeah. We're getting close to a new album soon. Because Eden just produces so much media. Yep, that's my thing. So, until next time. Bye. Bye.